Hello there, everyone. I'm Tara Boyce, writer, voice actor, aspiring adult, and today, podcast host. Because in recovery, I get to choose to be whoever I want to be, if I'm willing to work for it. Thank you for tuning in for the very first episode of Addicted to Recovery, the Interactive Memoir, a podcast that's part audiobook, part Q&A, part spirituality, part philosophy, part psychology, part self-improvement, because I don't know about you, but my addiction was never just about one thing and didn't only impact one aspect of my life. So if I want a robust recovery, if I want my recovery to be as progressive as my disease was, I'll need to keep filling up that toolbox. Last year, a little over one year sober, I read a quote by Toni Morrison that said, If there is a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written then you must write it. I've read as many autobiographies about addiction and alcoholism as I could get my hands on, but I'd never read one that chronicled the magnitude of failure I've experienced in attempted recovery. Twelve inpatient rehabs, multiple hospitalizations, psych wards, detoxes, outpatient programs, oh my. At a point, a person may think themselves a lost cause. I was labeled treatment-resistant, terminally unique, and just terminal. But here I am, still alive. The fact that most of the recovery narratives I read were along the lines of, things got bad, I hit rock bottom, I went to rehab, now things are better, didn't encourage me. There were no stories about people like me getting better. There was no, well, things got bad, I hit rock bottom, went to rehab, then things got worse, and I realized, oh wow, that wasn't rock bottom, went back to rehab, got out, then things got worse again, maybe went to the psych ward this time, you know, for some variety, and then, well, things got a little better, but then, what do you know, things got worse again. Multiply that by a few more times until eventually, things stopped getting worse, then got a little better, then a bit better. Until I started to believe that if I kept doing the things that made it get better bit by bit, the same way I kept doing the things that made it get worse bit by bit, well, hey, maybe it would keep getting better the same way it kept getting worse, and so far, it has. So I wanted to write this book to give hope to anyone who thinks that they're hopeless, like I did, or to deter anyone before they become hopeless, or just for anyone to cackle at my misery should that bring them pleasure. So I wrote. A lot. But then I thought, well, a book is a sort of one-way discussion with me as the authority. <laughs> I'm not the authority. I'd much rather have an open conversation about all this and make this book a collaborative effort. I also recognize that even I, a creative writing and English literature major, rarely just sits down and reads a book as often as I would like to anymore, and this could be an opportunity to get the story out there a different way. Let's talk about it. It'll also give me an opportunity to talk about things like the connection between recovery and Japanese role-playing games, or even give you a little sneak peek into the musical I'm writing about rehab. Those things don't really fit anywhere in the book. The most important thing I've learned about recovery is that it's an ongoing effort, and a collaborative one at that, so why should this book be any different? So welcome to my interactive autobiography experience. I'm going to read a chapter, and we can talk about it. Maybe it'll prompt me to change something in the upcoming chapter. In the next episode, I'll address some of the conversation this stirs up, then read some more. 
Maybe I'll change the format, have guests, or go completely off book. We'll see, because we're always in the process of discovery. So share your thoughts with me, and I hope I can offer something of value to you in your recovery. And you don't have to be a junkie to be in recovery, because we're all kind of in recovery from something all the time, aren't we? So, trigger disclaimer... The book starts in the middle, then goes back, then forward again, kind of like an episode of Lost, which is an apt metaphor for my life. But there will be descriptions of drinking. I don't think any of it is particularly glamorous, but if you're in a place in which hearing references to drugs, alcohol, sex, or even just existential despair might be harmful to you, please use your own judgment. In addition, I am not a mental health or addictions professional, and even if I was, I'm still not an expert on your recovery. I'm not here as a representative of any particular recovery community. I'm just a person with a story who made a whole lot of mistakes, and I'm excited for us to learn from each other. Fall 2007. I'm 23. After a summer of hospitalizations, 911 calls, and weeks of being missing in action due to excessive inebriation, I managed to extort another several thousand dollars out of my parents for tuition to go back to my creative writing program at Concordia University. I convinced them, and myself, that what I lacked was structure. I didn't need to go back to rehab, no, no, no. I sang along to Amy Winehouse without irony, as the singer was still alive, and I believed that she and I could keep actively killing ourselves, yet still somehow live forever. What I needed was a university program notorious for its drinking culture. I don't know if I actually believed this, or just desperately wanted to. There was an implied threat that if I wasn't able to return to school, I'd have no purpose, no future, and in the intolerable agony of it all, I would completely self-destruct. If I had a good enough reason, like my education, I would be sure to get my drinking under control. By October, my idea of under control was making sure I drank vodka and not wine if I was in class, but seriously, I only ever drank wine in an evening class and it was a writing workshop. Really, despite the fact that I was chugging it in bathroom stalls during breaks, it seemed like an entirely appropriate beverage of choice for the circumstances. The rationalizations reign supreme. I only drink in class to focus because I think I have ADD. I'm self-medicating. Drinking increases my productivity, as the fogginess from the previous day's drinking isn't just going to clear up on its own. And what about Ernest Hemingway, Dorothy Parker, even Stephen King? All alcoholics, all great writers. I was merely imitating greatness. Though I pretended this was a tongue-in-cheek association, perhaps my motivation for pursuing creative writing was the association between high literary achievement and high-functioning alcoholism. Unlike theater, my first love, where one is on display... The work of a writer could be done behind closed doors, and I could marry my two true loves, getting creative and getting blotto. Well, that was the fantasy. My grades and comments on a few early semester assignments, however, did not reflect the high-functioning end of that equation. 
I was struggling in modernist literature, reading Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and being woefully disappointed it wasn't just about existential angst. There were the dreaded close readings in which a class of 30 entitled youths with especially precious opinions would debate the placement of a single word in a sentence. Rather, they were enjoying the sound of their own voices playing with their new vocabulary of literary theory terminology, myself included. I didn't have the patience or the sobriety for close reading, so surgical and precise, and would rather make statements about the meaning of, perhaps, an entire paragraph, and my grades suffered. I wasn't failing, but needed to compensate on the midterm exam to keep up my GPA. A midterm exam that fell on Halloween. Being a self-identified, enthusiastic drinker whose favorite activity was listed as partying on social media, I still cringe about that one. Halloween was a pretty big deal and was not confined to just the one day. Oh no, costume debauchery was afoot all week on campus and it being the fledgling years of Facebook, people organized parties and could now invite pretty much everyone they'd ever met in life. So my studying was impeded by all this trickery and self-treating. The day before the exam was one of those Facebook parties, hosted by a classmate I barely knew. I was going to network, I told myself. I would only stay for an hour or two, I pledged, but, well, alcohol. When I woke up on the day of the exam on someone's couch, not only was I ill-prepared, I was just ill. I could barely string words together in my head, let alone form persuasive arguments or even hold a pen straight. But there was a solution to this. More liquor! Or so I thought. In all my experience with the jitters, I occasionally made the miscalculation that I was in withdrawal when I was actually still drunk from the night before. But given my tendency to black out, I often wouldn't realize that the night before had only been a few hours ago and my brain and body were still plenty saturated with liquor. Throwing more booze at my system when I needed to restabilize my nerves did work most of the time, but the occasional miscalculation led to a complete destruction of my faculties. This was one of those times. At a point, it became glaringly obvious that I was too intoxicated to write my modernism exam or even remember where my classroom was. My logic was, well, you're clearly going to flunk out of school now. And no, this reaction is not at all dramatic. You just need to get way more obliterated. Daytime blackouts are the freaky ones. People accept or tolerate drunkenness and raucousness at night, but being a young woman stumbling around intoxicated at noon bothers people. They look at you all crooked. Paranoia that I would hobble into a classmate, friend, or God forbid a teacher in such a state, drunk enough to think myself dazzlingly on the ball, led me to leave school, and at least I had the presence of mind to do that. I remember getting on the subway. That's it. Suddenly it's two o'clock in the morning, and I am dispossessed of not only my senses and memories of the last thirteen hours or so, but also apparently my wallet. There are vague flashes of wandering into a house party and getting into a fight with someone over ownership of a bottle of vodka that I was probably trying to steal. I don't know if I won the argument, but I hope it wasn't anyone I would have to see again. Coming to from a blackout is not like waking up from being passed out. It's an abrupt recognition that your body has been operating without you in the driver's seat. 
There is an accompanying sense of dread that whoever was operating your body may not have had your best interests at heart. Possession is a common trope in sci-fi and fantasy storylines, and when the compromised individual, classically someone who is weak-willed or otherwise corruptible, becomes liberated from their possession, there is often a combination of confusion and shame, because even if they were under the influence of an alien parasite or a dark overlord, there is the ethical dilemma of whether a person can truly be made to do horrible things if they don't already have the capacity, or even a hidden desire, to do those things in the first place. My favorite childhood video game was Final Fantasy IV, in which one of the main characters, a brooding dragoon rather biblically named Cain, has a nasty habit of kidnapping the hero's girlfriend Rosa and holding her hostage when he is possessed by an evil sorcerer. Unluckily for all concerned, he would break free from the sorcerer's bondage, rebuild trust with his compatriots only to be again magically compromised, and whoops, here we go having to save Rosa from the sinister tower yet again. However, when Kane is finally free for good, he admits that part of him just flat out wanted to kidnap Rosa because he had feelings for her. He liked having her around. The whole magical manipulation thing enabled him to act out on his covetous longings. Rosa was surprisingly understanding. Maybe she secretly enjoyed being kidnapped a bit, too. Because of these stories, mythologies, and religious meta-narratives, I was convinced for a long time that I must secretly want to do bad things and to have bad things happen to me, to hurt others, that it was my repressed Jungian shadow self that was just waiting to leap out of hiding every time I took a drink, so I could act out my darkest unconscious desires. This misunderstanding is confounded by normal drinkers who believe that alcohol only emboldens a person to do what they do indeed want to do anyways, like the plot of every romantic comedy in which the sexual tension is loosened by liquor, allowing the protagonists to lower their defenses and get naked with each other like the viewers knew they were aching to do from the first minute of that movie. I no longer believe this is the case, at least not for me. My blackouts were often absolute without even flashes of memory. Any agency was annihilated. If I did recall snippets, the choices I made seemed random, not explicable by the logic of egoic loosening. Said ego was entirely eradicated. Rather than say, booty call my ex-boyfriend or slushily confess my secrets to a friend, I was more likely to find myself at a stranger's house or wandering into shops to buy hazardously impractical footwear or end up lost in an unfamiliar area of the city I had no reason to be in. My tendency to vanish into unfamiliar surroundings put me at much greater risk. Because many times, strangers did not have the best of intentions, and whoever had the keys to my body certainly did not either. If I did have an unconscious shadow self, they must have read a lot of postmodern philosophy when I wasn't looking, as there was no overarching meaning to their actions. So, coming to shaking off the terror of the chasm of lost time and all the sickening possibilities of what I had done, who had seen me, what had been done to me. I am walking down a residential road somewhere in Montreal. I know the city. It's my home. But when my brain is descrambling, it feels like a labyrinth. I can't make sense of it, like trying to join in the middle of a conversation completely without context. 
It's not like the words themselves are unfamiliar or don't make sense. You just can't figure out how they connect. It's Halloween, so the streets are still alive, which makes me feel safer, like there is surveillance. I consider trying to find an ongoing party to slink into and abscond with more alcohol, but fear of people, exhaustion, or maybe my better judgment keeps me from doing this. Or rather, keeps me from doing this again, because even though I can't remember clearly, I reason that's how I manage to come to with a distinct whiskey aftertaste in my throat, something I never actually buy for myself. I keep on walking until I find Park Street and a 24-hour Ultramar. I sit down by the entrance and take inventory. No wallet. No money, save some loose change. No cigarettes. Mercifully, a water bottle with some boozy concoction of coveted party liquor, which solves the issue of trying to steal from the Ultramar after 11 o'clock when they stop selling alcohol in a bright orange Halloween dress at that. Looking up, I see this goofy-looking guy dressed up as a robot. Or rather, a dude with a spray-painted silver cardboard box on his body and silver body paint. I respect the body paint, though. It indicates commitment. I flag him down and ask him for a cigarette. He obliges and sits beside me, which agitates me. It was a request, not an invitation. But, beggars and choosers, as they say... I reasoned it could be an opportunity for a place to stay, or at least perhaps another cigarette for the road. I lament that I am distressed and concoct some tragic story of having been robbed and losing track of my friends, when I was actually more likely robbing others and avoiding any actual friends, but it's harder to be a damsel in distress when you're also the villain in your own story. He is obliging and completely non-threatening and allows me to smoke cigarette after cigarette, in retrospect, choosing the parking lot of a gas station to chain smoke may not have been a wise choice. I've seen Zoolander. After about an hour, he announces, Well, I guess I'm going to have to go get us some more cigarettes for later. I was planning on quitting after this pack, but you gave me an excuse not to. So, I can tell two things from this exchange. One, the implication that he's getting us cigarettes for later suggests that I'll be spending the night with him, which... I am okay with because I was hinting at needing a place to stay, but probably also suggests that sex might be involved, which I'm also okay with. Not because I'm attracted to him, but because I've accepted that sex is a suitable barter for, well, a place to sleep, cigarettes, and hopefully liquor. If there's more booze at his house, I'm totally okay with that transaction. If not, I'll still accept it, just a bit more sulkily. I can also tell that he's willing to compromise himself for me, though I don't know this yet. This is a telling relationship origin moment, from buying cigarettes when he was planning on quitting, to saying yes so many times when he had planned to say no. Back at his place, it's straight to the bed, and after me, him, and the sheets are all thoroughly covered in silver body paint, I curl up very tightly into a ball as I am prone to do after such activities, wanting to disappear into myself and he tries to uncurl me so we can spoon. I don't want to spoon. I don't want to feel his breath on my neck. Doesn't he get that random anonymous hookups are not for cuddling? By the next morning, it is clear that he doesn't, nor does he understand that they are not for hand-holding or phone-number exchanging or embarrassingly sentimental guitar-playing. 
I can't appreciate his good intentions, earnestness, and kindness that is not generally present in drunken one-night stands, because I don't like his sweaty hand-holding and am annoyed by the presumption of asking for my phone number and my own inability to say no, and I am judging his unpolished guitar playing rather than being touched by his vulnerability. I definitely do not enjoy that he keeps kissing me, like, romantically, as I've discovered he's a wake-and-bake pot smoker. His breath smells like rancid marijuana. Ew. At least vodka is a disinfectant. So, I just don't like him, but I mentally filed him as an if-I'm-desperate-I-can-probably-use-him candidate because that's how I viewed people. As consumables, only as real or as good as their potential usefulness in supporting me and my drinking. However, one-night stands were one thing. I wasn't ready to perform the pretense of a relationship with someone I wasn't attracted to just to have somewhere to hang out and drink. Not yet, anyways. It gets worse. For another ten years, it gets worse. So that was the end of chapter one, and I invite you to ask questions and leave comments, and I'll tell you how to do that in just a moment, but first I wanted to communicate that sharing some of the more shameful details of my past is not an easy thing to do, and I fear judgment, of course, but the first time I identified as an addict was not because I was in rehab or a 12-step support group or a psychiatrist's office. I was way too in denial for that, but more importantly, I was completely unwilling to stop drinking because I was too dependent on it to manage my emotions. I didn't know any other way. But still, I found myself shuffling into the mental health and addiction section of the library huddling in a corner with autobiographies of other addicts, reading them there, unwilling to take them home in case somebody discovered them and connected the dots because I thought I was fooling everybody. But I read these stories and I realized, damn, that's me. Someone else had had these thoughts. Someone else had behaved this way. Even though I wasn't ready to try to stop, it broke the illusion that I was completely alone. It was really the first step in acknowledging my addiction. The books in question were Caroline Knapp's Drinking, A Love Story, and Maria Hornbacker's Wasted, and I'll probably refer to them again. Wasted is actually about eating disorders, which I also flirted with, but about addiction nonetheless. These books were my recovery community before I was brave enough to find one in real life. So, if I can do that for even one person, uh, it's worth exposing myself to... Whatever backlash, criticism, mockery, it can't be worse than what I used to subject myself to when I was drunk all the time. <laughs> Honestly, I'm excited to see how this all turns out, so please share your thoughts, questions, comments. You can send them to interactivememoir at gmail.com or post on the Twitter page, which is Addicted to Recovery Interactive Memoir at T.O. Memoir. Join the Facebook group of the same name and and I'll do my best to address them in the next episode or get back to you personally. Clearly, I can't answer questions such as, how do I get sober? Because I'm not you. Also, a lot of autobiographical details are forthcoming in further chapters, but if I can answer a question or respond to a comment I think will be helpful to other listeners, I will do so to the best of my abilities. 
So, especially considering some of the chapters don't really end on the most positive note, I want to end every episode of this podcast with an idea, anecdote, or resource that has been valuable to me in my recovery. In this case, it was just a simple shift in perspective early on that happened kind of by accident. I was in a group therapy session, and another member was complaining about how it wasn't fair that she has to be an alcoholic while other people get to drink normally. Even though I kind of felt that way too, I chimed in that I used to feel that way, but now I was grateful that I actually had a disease that I could do something about. You know, unlike people who had debilitating physical illnesses they had absolutely no control over. The funny thing is, I don't think I even believed it when I said it. I was trying to impress the facilitator or impress the other group members. It was all ego talking. But still... As I said it, I found myself starting to believe it, and actually starting to feel a bit of gratitude that I did have another chance to turn things around. So, uh, my ego actually did me a solid there, and there were many other times where I found myself starting to say what I wanted to believe, and that a small part of me did believe but was almost afraid to commit to, and slowly I found myself wanting to live up to what that person said. Then I started to talk about my drinking in past tense. I talked like someone grateful to be in recovery, which brings me to the best bit of wisdom it took me 15 years to not hear and one day to really understand. You can't think yourself into better acting, but you can act yourself into better thinking. So I tried to let my actions do the talking for a while, and it seemed to work. Well, it certainly worked better than trying to philosophize my way out of alcoholism. So I hope you found this podcast useful, or entertaining at least. If you want to support me and this podcast, I've set up a Buy Me A Coffee account at buymeacoffee.com recovery. And until next time, remember that you have so much more to give to this life than you probably realize. Take care of yourself, and maybe life will start to take care of you back. <laughs>